This is Memorial Day. <clears throat> we have some folks gone to a, on a camping trip. Um, I forget where exactly they are. Wisconsin, near the Mississippi. I don't know wherever they are. They're having uh, they're having fun. I'm sure. <clears throat> but uh, this is Memorial Day weekend. Oftentimes we take an extended weekend um, to go and enjoy things outside. But we need to remember that this is a weekend because of Memorial Day on Monday. And Memorial Day is a day in which we as a nation remember those who have died in defending our nation. And it's a day in which we remember the sacrifice that others have made to give us freedom. And I just say this, never underestimate uh, just the sacrifice that others have made to get our freedom. Just don't don't miss that. And, and this, this weekend, let us honor those who have given their lives for us. Maybe you know some who have passed away in service. Maybe you have some relatives who did. Maybe some friends with some friends. And know it's just a difficult thing as people remember that. And remember this, that as many have noted, freedom is not free. What we have and enjoy here in America hasn't come without a cost. And we enjoy that freedom today because many gave up their lives and died. Maybe gave up their freedom, died, that we might be free it's only right for us to remember this, remember these people in this day. And the parallel of Christianity, though, can't be more obvious. We are called as a people who believe in Christ to remember the Lord Jesus Christ because He died for us to free us from our bondage of sin. As Paul said in Romans 8, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what the law... what for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. But by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ Jesus gave up His freedom, came upon man. He was free as God. He's totally free and sovereign came, took the form of a man, became a bondservant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, purchased our redemption. That by faith in Him we go free. And uh, in fact, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of our message this morning, just in, in rejoicing and thinking about the freedom that Christ has given to us. But on this Memorial Day weekend, we think about military victories, we think about sacrifices, uh, that have been made and what is meant, I thought it appropriate for us to look at Psalm 124. The psalm is a reflection upon the military victories that Israel experienced. And without a doubt, their victories came from the Lord. The call of the psalm is to never forget that fact. That our victories come from the Lord. This message isn't only for Israel. It's for us, too, to reflect upon, remember, the military victories of our nation, which have been won. Why? Because of the gracious hand of our Lord as well. The nation we have, the United States, I think, has been sovereignly guided by the hands of God. You think about the pilgrims who came over. There was a religious reason they came over. Founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. And God has blessed us immensely. We as a nation, sadly, are forgetting the Lord and are incurring some of the condemnation. But it has a great heritage, and we ought never forget that our victories have been by the hand of the Lord. Psalm 124 is identified there in the superscription. It's a song of ascents. As most of you know, 
been with us. Some of you, maybe you're, you're visiting, you don't know this, but we've been working through the songs of ascents. Uh, these are the songs that Israel would sing as they traveled up to Jerusalem to worship. The Lord required all the males of Jerusalem to come and appear before Him, uh, all the males of Israel to come and appear before the Lord three times. The Feast of the Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Harvest. To come and worship. And this was their hymn book, if you will, that they would sing as they would go up to worship. And there are 15 of these psalms. Psalm 120 is the first one. And Psalm 134 is the last one. And we've work, been working our way through them, um, not chronologically or not, not, not uh, numerically, but we've been working through them more, more topically. Uh, we started with Psalm 122, which is the psalm of ascents. It describes going up to Jerusalem. Um, as David said in verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It just speaks about the joy that we ought to have as we consider worshiping the Lord. Then the next week we went to <clears throat> Psalm 120, which describes the people being far from the Lord and far from God and how hard it is to be away from God, how hard it is to be away from the people of God and how our hearts ought to long for God. And then on Mother's Day, we looked at the Mother's Day Psalm, Psalm 127. This shows how God is the one who builds the house. God is the one who blesses. Right? Verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And God blesses. Behold, verse 3, children are a gift of the Lord. And we just need to trust that God is going to be the one to help us. And so you remember, mothers, I told you to, to trust the Lord and go to sleep. Because he gives to his beloved, verse 5, even when they sleep. After verse 2. So those are the Psalms. We've hit three of them so far. This morning, we're going to hit Psalm 124 because there's something about Memorial Day that can help us to come into the presence of the Lord to, to worship. So remember the role the Lord played in the military victories. And you want to know what the role the Lord played in military victories? It's everything. And we shall see that in the Scripture. In fact, the, battle, the, the Bible is really just a story of how God has won victories for His people. Proverbs 21, 31 says the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, meaning that men battle, they, they, they gird their horses, they pull their arms, they put on their shields, but ultimately the victory belongs to the Lord. That is the theme of this song, that's the title and message, victory belongs to the Lord. Listen for that theme as I read this psalm, Psalm 124. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The first thing we notice about this psalm is its inscription. It's a song of ascents of David. Now this is one of four songs of ascents ascribed to David. The first one is in Psalm 122, which we looked at a few weeks ago. And then Psalm 131 and Psalm 133. And naturally, what I think is a, is a good thing to do, as many people have done, is try to say, okay, does this psalm fit into any period of David's life? 
If David wrote this, might find a, a time in which would give us some, some insight into the, the psalm itself. Now, that's a good thing to do, but with this psalm, it's incredibly difficult um, to identify some one event in which he, he writes. Because the, the, the psalm is really too broad. It speaks of how God has delivered the Israelites from defeat and how Israel ought always to remember that. And if you think about David's life, that happened many times. If you think about Israel... That happened many times, even before David. And that principle is good enough that even after David, same thing happened. And even up even to the present day, God has been faithful to Israel as well. The fact that even there is a nation of Israel is a testimony to God's mighty hand to deliver and help that nation. So when David may have experienced himself was a principle that he saw before in Israel's history and extends throughout all time. Here it is. Victory belongs to the Lord. Now, my first point here this morning covers verses 1 through 5. It says this, what if God was not for us? That's the question in verses 1 and 2. What if God was not for us? Now, it's not set in a question form, but really that's fundamentally what's taking place. Verse 1, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us? The big question, what, what if God was not on our side? What if God was not for us? Let's just think about that. What if God was not for us? Well, verse 1, we see even how important it is to ask that question. David is calling all Israel to, ask, to say this, right? Had it not been the Lord who was on our side? And they says, let Israel, everyone say this. Had it not been the Lord that was on our side? He's repeating this because it's important. Just like Psalm 129 Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Let Israel now say. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. And that's the idea here of, of Psalm 124. I do think that um, this may have been uh, kind of a, a song that people started and that people then could, could ring in. Like, so someone maybe just to start on their way up, they just said, Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, and then by that time, everyone's there and everyone could say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us. And in fact, when men rose up against us, that's just a general term, just talking about how they're under attack from their enemy. And they said, when we were under attack, let's suppose that if God was not on our side, what, what would have happened? Now, that's often a good question to ask. Right? What, what if something didn't happen? What if something didn't exist? It kind of really helps to show you and give you an appreciation for things. Some questions are really easy to answer like this. What if there was no gravity? Well, what if there was no gravity? I know some of the little boys here might love thinking about that. What happens if there's no gravity is we all start just floating up and out of space. In fact, uh, all of our, our body just kind of falls apart. Planets explode. The... And the universe becomes this big soup eventually. That's kind of cool, huh? What if there was no moon? A little darker at night. Tides aren't as much. Um, because the sun causes tides too, so there would be tides, but there wouldn't be as much. And I, I like this. Neil Armstrong's life wouldn't have been nearly as interesting as it was if there was no moon, right? Other questions are more difficult. Those were easy. Um, what if we'd lost the Revolutionary War? We've still been part of Britain. What if we'd have lost the Civil War? 
and our nation divided right down the Mason-Dixon line. What if we never fought the war in Iraq? You start thinking, we don't know. But the question here, Psalm 124 says, what if God was not for us? What if God was not on our side? This question falls in the easy category. All right? If God was not on our side, the answer comes in verses 3 through 5. They would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. So here it is. In other words, if God had not been on our side, we'd have been sunk. Pun intended. Right? Because there's a lot of of language here. David describes Israel as being deep in the waters. I mean, notice, look, look at verse 4. The waters would have engulfed us, right? The waters would have been fully surrounding us. Verse 4, the stream would have swept over our soul. So, so it's not just surrounding us. All of a sudden, the stream is coming over our soul. We're, we're submerged at this point. Verse 5, the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Even here, it's again, it's more extended, more violent. These raging waters, which the King James translation says, literally the proud waters, right? The victorious waters. That, that first it comes and engulfs us, goes over our soul, and then spins us around. We'd have been sunk if God had not been on our side, David says. We'd have been drowned at the sea. One of the greatest pictures of this, of course, is the Exodus. You remember the days when Israel was in slavery in Egypt. They were pressed by the Egyptians, forced to hard labor. They felt their bondage and they, they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord rem- heard their cry, remembered their covenant, and then said, I'm going to deliver you by the hand of Moses. And um, Moses would go into Pharaoh to talk to him. And these, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And, and these ten times they went back and forth. And God brought ten plagues upon the Egyptians to demonstrate his power. And God stopped the plagues the exact time when Moses said it would stop. God, Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, made a mockery of the Egyptians. And ultimately, God delivered the Jews from slavery. But He did so in such a way as obvious that God was on His side. That God was on Israel's side. But one scene in particular comes to mind. We think about Psalm 124. It comes to the Red Sea. You remember because of the death of Pharaoh's son, he said, just get out of here and just leave. And Israel starts leaving. And then Pharaoh's heart says, what did I just do? I just released these millions of slaves. I'm going to be sunk myself. I need help in labors. So he went and followed after them. And as the Israel was camping in front of Baal Zephon by the sea, the Lord led them there. Pharaoh's army came. And then the pillar of a fire and cloud stood between the armies and stopped them that night. And Israel's like, what are we going to do? Because Pharaoh's army was in front of them. The Red Sea was behind them. But God was on their side. And that made all the difference in the world. I just want to read Exodus 14, 19-31. Then the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So that it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night long. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back with a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through in the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on their left and then the Egyptians took up the pursuit and all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. 
At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Even the Egyptians knew that God was fighting for them. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over the chariots and on their horsemen. So Moses stretched his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overflew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered their chariots and their horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea and the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Now I ask you, was God for Israel or not? Abundantly so. God was on his side. Now I ask you, what would have happened if God was not on Israel's side? The Red Sea behind them, Pharaoh's army in front of them. Now, we don't know exactly, but I can think of a couple of alternatives. Either the Egyptians would have captured them, re-enslaved them, or the Egyptians would have killed them, or the Egyptians would have pushed them into the sea and would have drowned them. That's exactly what verse 3, 4, and 5 are talking about. They would have swallowed us alive. Their anger was kindled against us. The waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul Yes, the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Now, David may have been referring to this event, but I think David's view of the psalm is is much bigger than this one-time rescue at the Red Sea. From the beginning of David's life until the end, David knew very well that victory belongs to the Lord. Do you remember when David defeated Goliath? Do you know how he did it? Right. We might think, well, he picked up those five smooth stones upon the rock and he slung it and, and, and hit Goliath right on the head. We might think that David did that. But listen to what David himself said. He said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. He considered the, the lion and the bear that he took down with his sling that it was God who delivered him. And so he knew that God was going to be the one to deliver him from Goliath. And that's what happened. The Lord gave David the victory. So don't ever think that that first stone that David slung against Goliath was just happened to chance hit him on the forehead. God's hand was on David. God's hand was on the sling. God's hand was on the trajectory of the stone. And it hit right where God intended because God was the one who delivered David. And the Lord delivered Israel that day. 1 Samuel 17 verse 37. And that was the first of many, 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 many military victories that David had. Listen to his testimony at the end of his life. This comes in 2 Samuel chapter 22. David writes a psalm. He said, said, David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Victory comes from the Lord. 
My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies for the waves of death encompass me. The torrents, another water word, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. And from His temple, He heard my voice. And my cry for help came into His ears. He sent from on high and He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. In other words, all of David's victories, he's saying, come from the hand of the Lord. Victory comes from the Lord. But did you hear the flood language? I tried to pull it out for you. In 2 Samuel 22, verse 5, the, the waves of death encompass me. Just, just picturing, right? The, the army is coming, coming, coming at you like water. The torrents surrounding him. And even he said, right, they, God rescued and drew him out of many waters. Now, here, here's the interesting thing. If, 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 you would, if you would look in David's life to see when was, when was he close to drowning? Uh, I don't think you find any instance where he was drowning. So he, I think what he's doing is using this flooding metaphor for, for just wicked people coming, armies coming upon him that's just deluging him. In fact, Isaiah says, the wicked are like a tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. And it's, the waters toss up um, refuse and mud. For there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Right? The wicked are like a tossing sea. When they're coming in an army, it's like a, a sea metaphor is what, what he used here. And, and he used that one time in Second Samuel chapter 5 when he first won Jerusalem, when he conquered that city there, um, before he did, he inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? We give them into my hand. God said, go up. I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And so David went up and defeated them there. And then listen to what David said after he captured Jerusalem. The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. In other words, David felt that he flooded his enemies. But had it not been the Lord, they would have been on our side. They would have flooded him and it shows that Psalm 124 doesn't need to be taken literally. But what it shows is just, it's, it's a poetic picture here of just being flooded and inundated. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's a word picture here. Water sweeping over your soul. Even we can see that, right? Verse 4. The stream would have swept over our soul. Right? He's talking about, you swim sweeps over your body, not your soul. But he's talking about just coming over and killing us and, and uh, bringing us into death. That's the question for us this morning. What if God was not for us? Simple answer, we'd have been sunk. We would have been defeated. But things change in verse 6. And this is, this is a great place where everything changes, um, like some scripture passages do. This is like the but God moment, if you will. It's the great reality for Israel. It's a great reality for us. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The, the snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. These verses are called to praise the Lord for His delivering mercies. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us into the hands of their, of their teeth. 
have not given us to be torn by their teeth, rather. So here's my second point. Praise the Lord. He is for us. Well, right. What if God was not for us? Well, praise the Lord. He is for us. This is where the tension of the psalm is, is really resolved. It's a great reason, by the way, why we come here each Sunday. It's because God has delivered us. And God is for us. Paul said it this way in Romans eight thirty one: If God is for us, finish it for me. Who's against us? That's the same thing the psalm is saying. If God is for us, there's, there's nothing that can be against us. But if God had, had, had it not been the Lord who's on our side, then what happens? Who knows? But if God is for us, who is against us? And here's the great hope. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God gave his son to us and God is for us, how will he not also give us all things? That's our hope. The hope is we have in Jesus is that God is for us. He gave his own son to us. Therefore, he will give us all things. Indeed, victory belongs to the Lord. And Israel knew this. Many times they were under threat of being torn asunder, verse 6. There were many times throughout Israel's history in which they were trapped like a bird. There were many times throughout Israel's history in which the Lord helped them to gain victory. In verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord. And these pictures in verses 6 and 7 are desperation. The lion about to pounce on you and rip you limb from limb. Just tear you to shreds. You're in the teeth. Of the lion or the animal or the enemy. They're just going to rip you up. Or verse 7 speaks about how we're like a little bird which has been trapped by, by the, the fowler, by the bird trapper. He's laid the trap and we've fallen into the trap and now we're, we're in this trap and we're just waiting for the enemy to come and take us out of that trap. This, this is desperation. And what does God do? God comes, He breaks the snare. God comes, He sets us free. He says the snare is broken and we have escaped. Because our help is where? It's in the name of the Lord. It's not that, that we figured out how to escape. It's not that, that we're smart enough. It's not that, that we've done it. It's not our strength, right? Because battle belongs, the victory belongs to the Lord. And this, by the way, is the story of Israel. I, I've alluded to this already, but... It's a chance for me really this morning to brag on God, explicit mentions in the scripture. And, and I'm just going to touch on a few where it's explicitly God fighting for Israel to help them and release them. Uh, I'm sure there are more. And there are many times when, when Israel did escape, it just doesn't say in the Bible that, that God delivered them. It just, they, they escaped. But surely God's hand was underneath them as well. If we believe in the sovereignty of God over all things as we do. So let's just think about Israel. Do you remember they escape from the Red Sea and they go the first battle they fight is against the people of Amalek. And um, things were things were going OK, not looking very well. And then all of a sudden, Moses, what does he do? He lifts his hands. And when he lifts his hands, what happens? Israel succeeding. And when his hands get heavy, what happens? The Amalekites are succeeding and he lifts his hands and Israel and he drops his hand. And so, right, he, he got two of his friends. What are their names again? Aaron and 
her stand there and they hold up his hands. His hands are probably going numb, but Israel is winning. And do you think Moses had magic in his hands? I've seen on television sometime, I think it's the Buffalo Wild Wings, right, commercials. Say, hey, let's send this game into overtime. The guy says, okay, well, let's send it overtime. And, you know, he does something and blinds the officials so he doesn't do it, right? It's not that there was some trickery going on there. It was clearly when he had his hands up, he was worshiping the Lord, and God was prevailing. It's a clear testimony of the power of God that victory is the Lord's. How about Jericho? Do you remember the Battle of Jericho? The Israelites, think about this, merely marched around the city for seven days. Six days once time, time around, seventh day, seven times around, and then, right, they pulled out their swords, right? You know what they pull out? They pull their trumpets and, and they shouted, and what happened? The walls came down. Now, who brought the victory? The Lord clearly brought the victory. How about Joshua when he led the Israelites up to Gibeon to fight against the Amorites? The Amorites begin to flee. Maybe you're not familiar with this story so much. Joshua 10. And the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them and they died. In fact, it says, there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Right? So let's tally it up at the end. Whatever. God nailed 3,000. Sons of Israel, 2,000. God throwing these hailstones against His enemy. Who won the victory that day? The Lord did. Or maybe you remember when the sun stood still in the valley of Ajalon. Joshua's fighting and things are going well, but the sun was going down and if it would get all dark, they'd have a chance to escape. And so he prayed to the Lord, oh, oh, sun, stand still. And the Lord lengthened that day. And we read Joshua 10, verse 14, that the Lord fought for Israel on that day. Why did they win that day? Because there's the Lord. So keep bragging on God. What about the day of the judges? This is clearly the hand of the Lord. Whenever Israel forsook the Lord, what, what took place? They're defeated. But whenever Israel repented and returned to the Lord, Judges 2.16, then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. And over and over and over again this happened. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, He raised up Othniel, the first judge, to deliver them. But after Othniel delivered them, Israel went, did evil in the sight of the Lord, their enemies prevailed. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, raised up Ehud, who delivered them from Eglon, king of Moab. And Shamgar came right on his heels and struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, saved Israel. But soon afterwards, what happened? The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And when they did evil, what happened to them? They were defeated. But when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, he sent Deborah and Barak to defeat them, to deliver them from the hands of their enemies. And so things were good. And then when they forsook the Lord, what happened? Sons of Israel did evil in sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them into the hands of Midian. Then you remember in Judges, right? The Lord, they, they cried out to the Lord and God raised up for them Gideon to deliver them by the hand of the Midianites. You remember the story of Gideon? And he said, who wants to fight? And there were, I forget the numbers now, 300,000 wanted to fight. He says, anyone want to go home? A bunch went home. And um, my numbers are bad. 30,000 to fight. Who wants to go home? 20,000 went home. There are 10,000. Well, let's have this drink. And it got his army down to 300 because that many was too big. He wanted to see clearly that the battle was the Lord's. The fight was the Lord's. And so Gideon 
went and routed the Midianites, only 300. And, and the whole point of reducing this army down was to show that it was God who delivered the people. The same thing happened with the other judges, Tola and Jair and Jephthah and Ibzan, Elon, Abdon and Samson. All of them, same thing. That when they cried out to the Lord and were right with Him, God delivered them. But when they were far from Him, God didn't. Who has the victory? Who's the key of victory? It's not in people who repent. It's in the God to whom the people call out as a fruit of their repentance. And David knew all these things. These were all past history for David. He said, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, we'd have been, we'd have been sunk. But God is in our side, verse 6. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. But there would be victories even future time of David, which God did clearly bring the victory. On Mount Carmel, you remember that? Elijah was against 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the Asherah. And he was trapped right up there. One against 950 prophets. He set up this whole contest with the two altars. And the Lord gained the victory by bringing fire down upon Elijah's altar. Remember that? Who won that one? God or the pro- or Baal? God won that one. And then Elijah ran from Jezebel. He protected Jezebel in a hiding place 40 days, providing food, drink by the brook, brook Kareth. How about the days of Sennacherib when he came up against Israel? Hezekiah was saying, Israel, trust in the Lord. He will deliver us. Then Rabshakeh, Sennacherib's messenger, came. Here's what um, Rabshakeh said to those in Judah. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm sorry. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. So here he is. Rabshakeh is talking on behalf of Sennacherib, trying to persuade the people of Israel away. He said, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hands of the kings of Assyria. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hands of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? No. Who among all the gods of the land have delivered their land from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? In other words, he's saying, this is so silly. We've conquered everybody. What is going to lead you to believe that God is going to deliver you? You're trapped. We're coming to destroy you. So surrender. We're going to get you. And what did Israel do? To Rabshakeh's comments, they were quiet. They trusted in the Lord. And indeed, the Lord delivered Judah from Sennacherib by slaying 185,000 warriors in one night. Clearly God did it. Then they turned away, went back, said, oh, we're not going to fight against Jerusalem. Just kidding. And then went back home. Who won that battle? The Lord did. Now, it may not always be clear how it's done. And we may not always see, but God is fighting the battles for us. Remember the days of the... When the king of Aram came against Israel, an army with horses and chariots circling Samaria. And Elisha's servant, remember that, was just trembling with fear. He said, alas, my master, what should we do? Right? We've got all these, these warriors around us, around the sea. What should we do? And Elisha, it's a cool cat, said, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
Like how crazy that is. There's more coming to ambush them inside. He said, the math doesn't make sense. Then Elisha said, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes. He saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When they came down on him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. So who won the battle that day? Was it Elisha and few in the city of Samaria? Or was it the Lord who did it? Answer me, who was it? It was the Lord. Why did Elisha have no fear? He knew that victory belongs to the Lord. And now we come to us, Mary Ways, by way of application. What about you? Are your battles, do you believe that, that God is on your side? And do you believe that victory belongs to the Lord? What's true about Israel is true for every believer in Jesus Christ. Are you worshiping the Lord? Are you saying praise the Lord because He's for us? I mean, think about, think about how God was for the early church. Peter and John speaking boldly to all the people in Jerusalem. It's like Phil read for us this morning. Thousands of people repenting of their sin and coming to Christ. The Lord was adding to their number day by day. Those were being saved. And at one point, then, the, the religious leaders arrested Peter and John. They're placed before them. They'd already told them, we don't preach anymore in this name. And they're, they're standing there before them again, having preached in the name of Jesus again. And Peter and John were saying, we cannot stop speaking about the things that we have seen and heard. And so this, this Jewish unbelieving um, assembly is having, having some difficulty. And, and then at one point, Gamaliel dismisses Peter and John and says, okay, guys, time for a quiet huddle. And Gamaliel huddles everybody around. And I just want to read what he says. Acts chapter 5, 35 to 39. Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. Now, now Gamaliel here, by the way, spoke better than he knew. For some time ago, Theudius rose up claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So we, we've seen this gig before. Lots of people following somebody. He was killed. Done. And after this, a man named Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. And he too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. So in this present case with Peter and John, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is from men, it'll be overthrown. But if it's from God... You will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be found fighting against God. <laughs> How good is that? Gamaliel's counsel, just leave him alone because if God is in this thing, you're going to be fighting against God. And so what's the implication there? Who was fighting for the early church? God was for sure. So they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They released them. And then what happened? Throughout all the book of Acts, you read these progress reports about how the word of God was spreading. Acts 6-7, the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What would cause Jewish priests to become obedient to the faith unless it was God working? Acts 12-24, the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Acts 16-5, the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Why did God's word have such an impact upon the society of those days? Because God was with the church. 
This is the great reality for us in Psalm 124. God is for us. If He wasn't, we'd be sunk. It's like one of those, those great but God passages. Look over at Psalm 130. There you see a great but God passage. Verse 3. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Right? If God was against us, we couldn't stand. But, verse 4, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God is for us. If He wasn't, we'd be dead in our sins. In fact, you remember Ephesians chapter 2, right? That, that we are dead in our sins. We are by nature children of wrath. And then it comes Ephesians 2 verse 4. What? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive in Christ. Raised us up and seated us with Him in heavenly places. So what, so what God has done, even when things all seem hopeless, because God works. Or, or what about what, what Paul said to those in Corinth? Remember their, their questions in the book of 1 Corinthians? They, they, they bring up questions about following people or marriage or feet or food sacrifice to idols and in chapter 15 he brings up this they bring up this question about the resurrection and so Christ says that Paul says this okay let's think about the resurrection first Corinthians 15:12 if Christ is preached he's been raised from the dead how do some among you say there's no resurrection from the dead there are people denying the resurrection and so so Paul's basically saying this. Well, if there's no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ's been raised. And if Christ's not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Moreover, we're bound, found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ's not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still dead in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied. So in other words, if... If, um, if Christ was not raised, if God was not for him, if God really wasn't with Jesus, if Jesus really wasn't God, and he hadn't raised from the dead, then what's the result? <laughs> this whole thing's a sham and we ought to go home right now. We are of all men most to be pitied. But the good news comes in verse 20. That blessed but, as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to call it, but now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. And this is the hope that we have as believers in Christ. As Christ was raised from the dead, God was with Jesus, so too He's with us and He will raise us from the dead. Listen, I say, church family, God is for us. When Jesus came upon this earth, His name was Emmanuel. Remember what Emmanuel means? God with us. Im with, anu us, el, God, with us, God. God is with us. The same idea, He is for us. He came and walked. He, he tabernacled among us to be one of us. In fact, He became so much one of us that He died our death in our place for us as our substitute. You just read the New Testament. There are a hundred times, fifty times, which it says that Christ Jesus died for us. He died in our place. He died... Um, in place of us. He is for us. And He is worthy of our praise. We ought to praise the Lord, verses 6-8, through eight, because He is, is for us. 
And I mentioned earlier that one of the ways in which he expressed how he's for us is in the Lord's Supper. I thought today would be a good day to do that. We do it every four to six weeks, depending upon our texts. Once you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we celebrate the supper this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Of course, this is the passage that we refer to often here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Paul is describing the, the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He's betrayed, He took bread. And we given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is... What are the next words? Which is for you. It's given for you. This is, this, is, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't for himself. Oh, oh, it was for himself because he was purchasing a bride. But in many ways, he died for us. It just shows his whole intent that, that God is for us. So when, when Jesus was there at the Last Supper and, and, and sharing this bread... And breaking it kind of as a symbol of what's going to take place upon a cross when his body was going to break. He said, I'm doing this for you guys. And so you ought to celebrate this and remember that I'm for you. Is that not Psalm 124? We need to remember that if God wouldn't be for us, we'd be in trouble. But God is for us. Therefore, we're safe. We have the victory. And so Jesus is saying this bread is for you, therefore we can rest and trust in Him. There's a great parallel there. I want to finish reading the passage, especially for many of you visiting here this morning for the first time. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And again, the new covenant, that was a covenant that God said that He was going to give to His people. Right? Remember Jeremiah 33? This is the new covenant that I'll make with Israel in those days. I'll put my laws within their hearts. On their minds, I will write them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is God saying, basically, you know what? I'm, I'm going to so change your hearts and minds. You're not going to be like the time of the judges where you're rebellious and going back and forth. You're not going to be at the time of the, the exile here when you're being so rebellious that, that we're going to have Babylon come and take you away into exile. No, there's going to be a day in which I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit and you're going to then want to follow and desire to me. Now, now who's responsible for that? Don't ever think that it's, well, I was bright enough to see that this is where I need to go. It's, a, it's God in the new covenant working in us, and we merely respond to the work that God does in our hearts. That's sovereign freedom. God is free to do as He, he pleases, and He is the, the free one who is for us, and it's such good news. And He says in verse 26, As often as you eat of this bread and drink this cup, and rock for the Bible church every four to six weeks, as often as you do this, what are we doing? We're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. We're proclaiming that, yes, we're trusting in His death for our sins. And then comes the warning. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So don't think that the bread and the cup are going to be magically give you anything. This is an expression of our hope and trust in the Lord. And if you're visiting here today and you are trusting in Christ, by all means, celebrate the supper with us. But if you're not, um, just let the cup and the bread pass. It's okay. This is for those who proclaim their faith and trust in the, 
the cross of Jesus Christ. And let us, let us examine ourselves. That's why oftentimes in the Lord's Supper we have a period of silence. We just even think about our life. And I just encourage you, if you're outside of Christ right now, repent and turn to Him and trust Him and be on the Lord's side. Because if you try to go it alone on your own side, well, verses 3 through 5 will be true of you. The waves will overcome you. You'll be, you'll become, you will be caught in the snare of the teeth. You'll be trapped and captured. The only way free of that, free of our sin, is to trust in Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Reflect upon our lives. Reflect upon the death of Jesus. I encourage you now, Stephen, think of your life. Think of your sins. Thank Jesus for the forgiveness that's there. If you're not walking with Him, I plead you'd turn from your sin today. Because with the Lord is better than without. We might prepare for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. God's the only one who can take away our sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is victory in Jesus beneath His cleansing blood. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. It's the offer to all who repent. And, and so, Lord, as we come once again to celebrate the supper, which is a, a good reminder of what Jesus told us to do, is do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. We are remembering you right now, O oh Lord. Your death, burial, and resurrection, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to many people, that through Him the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. God, we turn and we trust in You completely. So I pray, Lord, that You would be with us in this moment here. We, we praise Him, right? We praise God because You are for us. And you demonstrated that most clearly when you, you died for us. So God, be with us and commune with us. And we celebrate this in a, in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.